Thank you for tuning in to Far Better, where we look to be pleasing to God in this life, so our eternity is far better. I'm your host, Michael Clark, and today we're talking in our summer season on Far Better Than, we're talking about Far Better Than an Addicted Life. We have Holly Clark, who is a recovering alcoholic, and Scott Kane, who is the minister at the DeGaulle Drive Church of Christ in Louisiana. Holly, why is addiction so rampant in our society today? I think that the biggest thing is, is it's become... You know, when we also talk about today, um, I think that addiction has always been a big deal. I think that lately there are some more highlights because there have been, I think, more deaths than, like, related to addiction than maybe in previous years. And so it hasn't been as streamlined or noticeable in the media because of that. Um, As far as, like it becoming so rampant. I mean, like I said, it's always been around, but I think for me, um, it was something that started out as being fun. And then over time, um, the, with continued use, like I, I ended up realizing one day I can't stop this. I would try and I, I literally couldn't stop and I didn't have any, I didn't know how, what to do. And, um, and so I continued going and I think some of it too is like not knowing, um, you know, like I got to a place where, I was searching for something to change the way that I felt because I, I did not like the current feeling that I had. And so I, that made me feel better temporarily. And then over time, it wasn't even something that I um, could feel better from as much because I needed it. Um, it was something that my mind obsessed over and my body craved. And so I had to have it. And, um, it took a while for me to be able to to catch on to a solution for what it is. But I think it really comes down to the stuff starts out fun. You think that the um, deaths that I alluded to a moment ago won't happen to you, and so you just continue to do this. But also, like, you're, you're literally just stuck in this situation. Um, I mean, I was a slave to it for many years, and I think that I'm not unique in that. Right. I mean, our society depicts on commercials and other things. Getting drunk at a party is always fun. It's always cool. There's always going to be beautiful women on your arms or the, the most handsome guy. And they don't show the horrible side of alcohol where people die in a car accident or people get addicted to it to, to the point where they destroy their lives. And the various, you know, it always starts out fun. And that's one of the devils, it seems to be, best, you know, uses of temptation is, but this is fun. And when we do things that are fun, it can't be wrong because we have too much fun doing them. And so, uh, you know, I think you're right when you said our society today, it's been so common in the last five to seven years with social media for people to post everything that they're doing. And even to the point that there have been some who are depressed, which we're not talking about in this episode, but depression has even hit to where people have sadly streamed themselves killing themselves on Facebook and other sources of media. And so it's like, we wouldn't have heard about that happening in the 80s the way because we didn't have social media the way that we do. And so we kind of have a society today where it seems to be like they're, it, it is becoming more and more obvious that people are struggling with this because it's right there on their profiles. It, you know, when every night you're seeing somebody go out to do this stuff and then you start to notice them struggling, it's almost like you can say, oh, now it makes sense some of the things that I've been seeing on their social media page. Whereas in the past, people would go to work, they would go, you know, back you know, they'd leave work, they'd go do whatever they want to do, and then they show up for work the next morning. And unless you were with them, you didn't really know what they did. Now we know everything that people do. And so I think you're right. Our society today kind of makes it 
more open for us to see some of this stuff than we really did in the past, but it's always been there. It's not like this is some new thing that just came up in the last five years. Even books like The Great Gatsby depict people in the 1920s who were having raging parties and getting drunk and doing all these things. So alcohol has been around since the Bible. You know, when the Bible was being written, alcohol was around there. And that kind of brings me to, to what I want to ask Scott is whether or not the Bible has anything against addiction. Oh, there's much against addiction. And not only alcoholic addiction. Uh, w- when you look at the topic of addiction uh, from a broader perspective, you can, with carefulness, make certain descriptions that would apply to various different forms of addiction. And ultimately, addiction is about letting something else have control. Perhaps one of the clearest passages of Scripture that hits on that idea is going to be 1 Corinthians six twelve. The Apostle Paul said, All things are lawful for me, but not all things are expedient. All things are lawful for me, but I'll not be brought under the power of any. Um, when you're talking about addiction, then you've let something else get control of your life. Interestingly, in that very passage, if you back up from verse 12, Paul lists those acts of unrighteousness that will uh, prevent people from inheriting the kingdom of heaven. Uh, Be not deceived, neither fornicators, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, effeminate, abusers of themselves of mankind, thieves, covetous, drunkards, revilers, extortioners. Now that's a that runs the gamut of various sins, but you could actually categorize those in terms of uh, sexual sins uh, and material sins but they could all be described as addiction or if you even move forward in this passage uh, immediately after 1 Corinthians 6 13, uh, 12 is verse 13 meats for the belly, belly for meats but I won't be brought under control of any uh, the point being just because my body feels like it needs something or I have some kind of an urge does not mean I have to be subject to that impulse And, of course, in this passage, Paul goes forward to talk about uh, what might well be described as sexual addiction among the Corinthians because he had to say flee fornication uh, and give them instructions and exhortations concerning that. So, yes, Scripture says much about addiction. Uh, When it comes right down to it, addiction is when I've allowed something else to take control other than God. And if we really narrow that down, we think about some of the things described in 1 Corinthians 6, uh, fornication, uncleanness. There's another very similar list to that, uh, and it's in Galatians chapter 5. Now we call it the works of the flesh, and it's contrasted with the fruit of the Spirit. The works of the flesh are manifest, which are the, these, adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, hatred, wrath, variance, emulation, strife. If you look at that particular passage of Scripture, uh, Galatians 5, 19, back up from there to verse 13, and this passage begins with an exhortation from Paul saying, you've been called to liberty, but don't use liberty for an occasion to the flesh, but by love serve one another. Uh, uh, All the laws fulfilled in one word, love your neighbor as yourself. He begins this passage talking about the contrast between selfishness and selflessness. And what's really interesting is when you go to the end of this passage, Galatians chapter 5, verse 26, let us not be desirous of vainglory, provoking one another and envying one another. All of that list of the works of the flesh, 
Every one of those actions can be described as an addiction. Now, a person does not have to be an addict to commit an individual sin in each of those areas. But when you look at those in terms of addiction, and then you broaden the perspective to view all of the context of that passage, every one of those is an act of selfishness. And whenever you're looking at addictive behaviors, and every one of us is susceptible to it, it's a matter of I'm looking for something that makes me feel better, that, that elevates me. Holly did a great description of describing what happens with so many when it starts off with just uh, a thrill, uh, fun. For some, it starts off because something traumatic happened and they're finding an escape. For others, it starts off with fun and then something traumatic happened because they were intoxicated and they turned to the intoxication for more of an escape. Uh, But all of that being said, when you look at what Scripture has to say about this particular kind of behavior, it really narrows down to my focus is not so much on the the sexual addiction or on the alcoholic addiction or on the narcotic addiction. My focus is on me instead of God, and that's what led to the addiction. I think it's interesting that when we look at addictions, a lot of them escalate. Yes. Um, pornography, for example, there have been studies that indicate that eventually people who are addicted to that, it doesn't work anymore to see what they've always seen. They have to find something more exciting. And it's one of the reasons, and it's so horrible to think about, but it's one of the reasons why child pornography even exists, is that people were looking for something greater of a thrill and greater than what they'd been seeing, and so they turned to children. And that that's what addiction can do to us at times, is it can take someone that was a well-respected person and it just absolutely chews them up and spits them out. But people that can do what Holly was able to do, and there are others who are able to do it, no one says that they've ever fully come back. You always say recovering. I'm, I'm, rec- I'm a recovering alcoholic because I'm, I'm always working to be continuing to stay in that light. It doesn't mean that you've had a drink in the last 30 days. It just means you're realizing this is an addiction that I don't just flip a switch and it never bothers me again. And so I'm constantly focusing on what I'm doing to stay out of it. So in regards to you and what happened with you, if you had to tell us, you know, your story in a few minutes, what would you kind of tell us about how you struggled and, and how you got out of it? Yeah, and I'll start with, um, I'll kind of start backwards and go forwards just for a second. Um, so the there's much debate, and I'm a, I'm a part of a 12-step program, and there is much debate within that program about um, recovered versus recovering, you know. And um, so the thing about it is, is many, w- the book describes um that many do recover if they have the capacity to be honest. And so I uh, today have that capacity. So, That's great. Um, so I'm able to say that I have recovered today. Um, but it's a conditional thing. But for me, going back to, um, so I took my first drink when I was eight years old. And I'm not going to go through the year by year because that would take way too long. You know, it's hard to sum up um, several years in a short amount of time. But what I can say is, like, I've heard a lot of people tell their stories um, and the describing, you know, getting this feeling and for me at eight years old, I had not yet experienced any type of trauma or, um, I had a great childhood, great parents, great family life, no reason to, to drink my sorrows away. Um, I stumbled across someone, um, who was drinking and that person will remain nameless, but I stumbled across the person who was drinking, who I was very close with, very codependent with, and they were drinking 
wine in one hand and had a cigarette in the other and we and I wanted to be just like this person growing up and so I wanted to do the same thing and and so what I can remember from that first drink was getting this sense of like ease and comfort and this warm feeling of like I kind of like this you know and and I didn't drink for several years after that and I wasn't even really searching for it like I wasn't one of those like I've heard people that was like one and done you know like but when I say done I don't mean like they were done drinking it was just like that's all it took for them to to get there I started drinking again when I was in high school and um, I was about 15 16 years old and it was like a weekend thing friends partying uh, after football games different stuff like that staying at friends houses and um, obviously most of your listeners are probably familiar with our family and and know our parents and they were not that they um, were unaware because of any of their fault it was just um, easy to you know when there's a will there's a way and I found a way to do what I wanted without um, until it it did eventually catch up with me and um and there was some consequences for those actions but what happened was I continued to drink and and for me by the time I started when I was drinking at 15 I was drinking to get drunk in fact I really didn't know there was any other reason to drink and it wasn't until I came into the rooms of AA that I when people asked me I went to treatment for the first time and they I said well I'm not an alcoholic I'm just a drug addict and and I clung to that but um, one of the questions they asked me was, well, did you drink to get drunk? And I said, why else do people drink? And everybody busted out laughing. And I was like, no, I, I'm serious. Like, that wasn't a joke. You know, I did not know that there are people who can just drink a couple drinks and not have to just get hammered. And that wasn't my experience. And that continued on for several years. And I was in and out of um, staying at home. I tried to go to Freed Hardeman, and I thought, if I just go here, like all these geographical changes, if I just go here, then I can sober up, and I'll quit drinking, and I'll get straight, and everything will be fine. But I found people just like me, you know, and um, and so it continued, and I could not stop. And then I add the drugs to it, and everything just really collapsed. And the thing about the drugs, I, I thought that that was the pro- and that was definitely the problem and it may have caused some more immediate consequences than the drinking did at times not all the time but sometimes and so and I was actually talking with my sponsor about this a couple weeks ago she was like I never questioned whether I was alcoholic and um and so but for me I think it really just shows my really profound love like here I'm coming into treatment like take take all the dope, but please let me just keep my vodka, you know, like in in my mind, that's what I thought. And that's the thing is like, this is, um, so alcoholism, um, was medically defined as a disease by the American Medical Association back in 1956. Now there's been a lot of debate within and outside of the church about that. In fact, it was even difficult for me to swallow that and to, I don't have, you know, I don't have a disease. There's nothing wrong with me and my tolerance got too high, but the, the, truth is is that I am not qualified to to make that de- declaration in fact they also declared it both under the psychiatric and medical classification of diseases back in 91 and um, with more research that I applied to that to really discover that I was a, really there's a lot of truth in that and if you if anybody listening um, has any questions that or d- disagreements with that I don't blame you because I did for a long time too but I just um would encourage you to do some research and if you don't understand probably be grateful that you don't but the thing about it is is that this is a, is a disease of the mind and body and and, and I, 
what happens is my mind obsesses over it. My thoughts are constantly on the alcohol, the drugs, whatever. And that, and I like how Scott talked about the addictions in many other forms because that's so tr- I mean, it's it can be anything, yeah. you know. Because um, alcohol and drugs weren't my only problem. And, and many other people may not have a problem with alcohol and drugs. And so they just, they, and a lot of times there is this disconnect of like, why do people act like that? And then, but the thing about it is, is like identifying your life, whatever it is that you're struggling with. And it's the same thing, you know, it's just that mine ended up being this. And what happened, I did this for several years. And then finally, um, life got so bad. I, at one point I was boiling water to take a bath. And what that looked like was I had four pots of water on the all eyes of the stove. I would dump it into a five-gallon bucket. I would carry it back to the bathtub, and I would do this two or three times. I would add cold water to it, and sometimes you would add too much cold water, and so you wasted all that time boiling water to begin with. I had no heat in my house. I was using a blow dryer to heat myself up in the morning underneath the blankets, and you would think that that would have been it, you know, like that's a sufficient enough rock bottom, and um but it wasn't, and, and it was something that I, even that couldn't make me stop. Nothing could make me stop, and I mentioned treatment. I, I went to treatment for the first time, I say, because I entered treatment two more times after that, and the biggest problem, and, and Scott mentioned it, and it's, and it's so true. My problem is that myself comes before anything else, and there was a time where I did not have the capacity to be honest and say that I even needed someone else's help, um, for me, what worked for me was um, the 12-step program. They know what they're talking about. It works for me. You know, and I think that's a big thing, too, is a lot of people, I don't stick to, you know, like I, my grandfather has fifty over 50 years of sobriety, and he never did the the AA thing and that works for him so I'm not a stickler to like that's the only like this is the only way you you can get sober it's not true but for me you know like I knew the right things to do I was taught the right way and I kind of correlate it to like when mom had her knee surgery last fall you know and I look at it like this you know she knew how to walk but nobody was like hey get up and walk you know because she couldn't and she wasn't able to yet and I'm great I'm grateful that I had family who could see my illness the same way and that it was going to be I, my dad used to say all the time you didn't get this way overnight and you're not going to change overnight like it's okay just you know and it was a slow um progression in the right direction just like the alcoholism and drug addiction was a slow progression downwards um so man it's hard to sum it up in the time that we have but basically um I finally got to a place where I had to concede to my innermost self that I was truly an alcoholic just as much as I was a drug addict and that I needed, there was, I I was beyond human aid. Nobody on this earth could help me. I needed to have faith and a connection with uh, God and to be able to live in his will and not mine and to make right the wrongs that I had done and to see on paper where had I been wrong and, and what are my most common defects and like where do those show up in my life and how can they still make my life unmanageable even in sobriety you know and um and to be able to like carry this message to the next person and to live a life of prayer and meditation with God and and it's about him today not about me and sometimes I can forget that but my purpose today um doesn't have anything to do with me it has everything to do with like what can I do to 
help further. And, and it's really cool. I, I, I get, I'm privileged to be able to sponsor three other women in the program. And it's really, really cool to be able to see like the light come on in their eyes and for them to get to that point of like realization or for them to connect with God and to create a relationship with him. And for us to even go deeper with that um, together as individuals. But I mean, a lot happened in right. my history of um, alcoholism. But the biggest thing that happened was that I reached a place where I finally had lost the will to continue going. And I I remember, I'll tell you, this was, um, I was sitting in a, a crisis center and, and it was, I was, I had refused medical detox because sometimes I like to punish myself. Right. And um, I was going to get in the shower and I was, man, I was, it was day three without anything and I was hurting. And I crawled into the shower, and the water felt like a thousand pinpricks falling onto my back. And it was freezing cold, and it was a, a government-funded facility, and so it was one of those you have to push the button of the wall to get in, to get the water to come out. And I was just standing there crying, and I was like, please let this water get hot. Please let this water get hot. And the water wasn't getting hot. And um, one of those coincidental stories, by the way, let me preface that. So I decided while I was in there that, okay, you know what? I came in here to take a shower. I'm just going to take a shower. And so I started to wash my hair. And as I started doing what I came in there, what I needed to do to take a shower, the water started getting hot. And I think I just needed, you know, I don't believe that there was some kind of divine intervention. I, I don't I don't believe that that's how God works today. I don't, you know. Um, but what I needed was the epiphany of, you know what? If I put a little work in, if I put a little action, then I get results. And so, and that's what I started to do is I started to actually like put my all into the program and really work the steps and really create this relationship. And I started digging everywhere for how to create that connection and like, and what that looks like for me, you know, and, um, and it's worked for me ever since. I thought it was interesting how you mentioned mom's knee surgery because and this is not because you're my sister. This is something I know other people who are recovered or recovering, as, as you mentioned. It bothers me that we have people in the church that are trying to take one example of somebody that they know that was able to quit cold turkey and basically say, y'all are making excuses. We don't do that with people who have surgery. Some people have surgery, and the very same day, they're making strides that mom didn't make. Mom probably made some strides that someone else didn't make. And everybody is different from their mind to their physical body. And there's a lot of different things that go into that. And we have to be careful when we want to use one example and say, well, see, this guy did it. Why can't you? Well, what if what if the nurse is, like you said, to come in and say, well, this guy's walking. Why aren't you? Well, that's not how it works. You know, you have to do what is best for you, and you can only do what you can do. Now, that's not an excuse, and I know you know that, and everyone knows that. It's not an excuse to continue doing it and never make any strides, but if you're making strides, I mean, someone who's smoked for decades is not necessarily going to be able to put down their last cigarette and not smoke the next day. But if they go from three packs to two and a half, and then two and a half to two, or whatever they, you know, they slowly go down from, they're making progress. And the person that's doing that, I would come in because they're saying, I'm going to change. I'm going to make an incremental change, but I'm going to change. And any change in the eyes of God, an effort, is pleasing to him. So long as they're, and God knows the heart of people too. We have to be careful not to judge each other's hearts. We can judge actions, 
but the heart of someone and, and not knowing their background and their story makes the difference in the world. And so one thing about that that I want to ask you, and then we've got one other question, and then we'll close out. This is a two-part podcast, by the way, for those of you listening, and we're going to talk more about what addiction can lead to and how to overcome it in the next episode. But what is one thing that you would say, because I hear all the time, it's this thing, it's this thing, it's this thing, and it's, it's always a different thing, but what is one thing that you would say is a trigger in regards to causing addiction? Okay, um, so I'm going to tell, kind of going back to the, I'm going to tell a story to kind of answer that, and it also goes back to when we were talking about the whole fun concept, right, and so I had somebody one time, they asked me to speak for this young people's group, and, and they said, can you just, like, mention to them that, you know, like, it's not fun, they really don't want to do it, and all this stuff, and I just looked at him, and I said, and it was an elder in the church, and I said, I I can't tell them that it's not fun at all because there was a period of time where it was fun. But what I can do is give my experience to how that altered and changed for me. And the thing about that is, is that, you know, I look at it like this. Um, There are some people who can and some people who can't. I'm not going to advocate for that's not what this podcast is about today. Um, But you got a 50-50 shot, you know. You're either going to have – develop this disease or you're not and so do you really want to risk it is it worth it and if I had known and really honestly this has brought a lot of clarity and and much benefit to my life today now that's only because I've been able to make some changes that I needed to but and you're right like I had to have an entire psychic change in order to to become recovered and to to do this thing I had to look at life differently I had to look at the people around me differently and I had to look at God's universe differently and until I could do that nothing was going to happen and as far as triggers go um you know for me because I, I relapsed twice and that was I say that because that was after my first entering into any type of like desire to change you know relapse is just a change to a former state after a progression for the better you know um so after making some efforts and and getting some better in some ways I went back out and the reason for that for me was my grandmother had just died March the 4th of 2016 and almost three months to the day July 5th my boyfriend who I'd been with for five years very heavily in active alcoholism and addiction with he overdosed and died and and so at that point it was you know what I don't want to do this. And that's where it was for me. That Those things were triggers for me. But I'll tell you what really happened. Because when Nanal died, I had... And see, that's when, uh, another thing. Like, you know, I'm not going to push... I'm a proud member of what, I, what my anonymous program. But at the same time, um, the reason why I, I stayed without drinking or drugging for over a year... And the reason for that was because I came back in and I was, I created a connection with God and I, and I, it was strong. But when Nanal died, I said, um, one of those foxhole 911 prayers, like, you know what, if you just let her live, I'll stay straight the rest of my life. And that's not what happened. And then it was a childish, you know, it's just, but it was also, you know, that's what I want. That's myself. That's so here I am now and I'm just going to be very candid. So then I got angry with God. Um, and I didn't want, I, did, I stopped praying. I stopped doing all the things that can, 
kept that continued connection. And so I was no longer living in a spiritual relationship with him. And so when my boyfriend died, all of the work that I had done had been squashed over the last three months. And I was without defense over what was in front of me. Because here's the thing, like overcoming, I mean, like, I know that today... The reason why I'm not drunk or high right now is because of the work that I've done so far. I think we'll probably get more into this in the next podcast. Mm-hmm. But what I also know is that if I go back out and I, like, I, I am not someone who can just go have one drink. I'm not someone who can recreationally use drugs, right, wrong, or indifferent, whatever. Like I cannot do it. If I do it, I will end up back in the same place I was because it took me, when I relapsed that first time, it took me about a month to get back and that I lost my job. I um, was pawning things from mom and dad's house. I mean, I was back in the same state that took me 10 plus years to get to. And when I relapsed the second time, for me, triggers were like my date, my triggers were dates or from traumatic things, different things that happened because my boyfriend's birthday and the day that Nana died are about six days apart. And um, another thing for me, and I'm going to, um, share something personal, and I'm not uh, ashamed to do it, but I also suffer with uh, mental illness. I have bipolar 1 disorder. I had gone off my medication, and so, again, I'm looking to change the way that I feel. I'm hurt. This will be a temporary fix. Oh, I don't know how to handle this. I'm maladjusted to life. Oh, I'll just drink again, you know, and that time it took me 10 days before I ended up in the facility where the water was on my back, you know, like a thousand pinpricks, and I'm detoxing from the, I couldn't, I couldn't handle it because I was just so still so um, selfish and self-centered and, and instead of considering, oh, you know what, this decision might affect those around me. No, I was just concerned with, like, what had happened to me and fixing that for myself. But there is not just um, – I don't believe that it's just one thing. I don't believe that um, th- there's – I think it's different for everybody, you know, and some people – are able, I've seen it, I've seen people that recreationally did harder substances that then just decided, you know what, like, I don't think I want to do this anymore, or there's an example um, in in the book that talks about, you know, like, the moderate drinker, the hard drinker, and the real alcoholic, you know, and the difference between those, and, and the thing about it is, is that at any point in our, in my drinking, I was, you could have been considered a moderate, moderate drinker, then I could have been considered a hard drinker. And then there was at the point where no return. And they were like men who lost their legs. They never grow new ones, you know. Mm-hmm. Um, and so some people can and some people can't. And that's just the way I, I've been. Uh, there's a another illustration they use. It's almost like turning it from a cucumber into a pickle. You can never take that pickle and turn it back into a cucumber. And so some people are able to move forward and never look back, and then some people are going to have to to suffer a little bit and do some work to be able to like stay sober. Yeah, I've I've heard some suggest that, you know, and I know the prom people go out and party after the prom. But you mentioned when you were in high school, people partied on the weekends. It didn't matter if it was prom. I mean, if it was a football game, people will find a reason to do what they want to do. And so this mindset of well, if we just keep them from going to prom, and I'm not an advocate for prom, but this mindset if we just keep them from going to prom, they'll never drink. That's not true. No, we skip school and drink exactly. all the time. Exactly, that, and that's <laughs> the problem is it's like this This mentality we're dredging up is our children are perfect because we've done our part, 
but that doesn't mean our our children, and it doesn't mean that. I mean, you met people you fell in love with at school, whether as friends or as a boyfriend or whatever, and that does that does change the relationship that you have with them to where, whether you know it's right or not, whether you know that it, it's not what you're supposed to do, the escape, the fun, the excitement, getting to be with people that you enjoy being around. All of that factors into this decision, whether it's the what drives you to continue or to stop. A lot of that factors into what a lot of people do to start is, my friends are doing this, I'm going to do it too. And so it's not this, well, if I just keep them from my friends. if Like you said, where there's a will, there's a way. And I'm totally in agreement with you. I think there are multiple different things that can trigger somebody and lead to addiction. It can be as simple as, like you mentioned, the death of a loved one or death of loved ones. It can be as simple as, I'm struggling in school. I need to get an escape. I'm, I'm out here at this you know restaurant that also has a bar. I'm going to order something and just, you know, I've heard this helps. That's the kind of stuff where it's not the same for every. It's not a cookie-cutter way for us to say, this is what you have to avoid. Really, what you have to avoid is alcohol. But like you said... That's not always going to happen. And if people knew that they would become addicted to something, in their right mind they would choose not to be. But if we knew anything that was going to happen bad, we would always choose to avoid it. So what we have to be able to do is what we're going to talk about in the next episode, which is overcome it in any way that we possibly can. And that might be different for people like we've discussed in this episode too. You know, Papal, I'm just going to stop. And I'm, I'm going to just work on it. And that worked. That's not again, a cookie-cutter way to handle it. And so the Bible itself, as we've been talking in this podcast, you know about the Bible has stuff to say about addiction. It doesn't come out and say, thou shalt not be addicted to anything. But it does by saying you should not be brought under the power of anything. And something that is very simple, that's not sinful in and of itself, is, is like video games or watching television. You can do that and it not be sinful. There is nothing more that I love than after a hard day's work to turn on the Xbox and play hockey, play football, and just relax. It's one of my most favorite things in the world. But if that takes Trump over me being a father, over me being a husband, over me being a preacher and a Christian, I got to throw that thing out or I got to pull myself back and, and deal with it. So if I'm looking in the Bible, Scott, for people who struggle with addiction and also kind of ways biblically speaking, for things that aren't sinful, like video games and all that, biblical ways that parents might be able to help their children deal with certain things, like you can be addicted to sports more than you are, and that, that can be a bad thing. So what kind of things could we have as far as, were there any Bible characters who struggled with this, and what advice would we give for parents who allow good, wholesome activities to become an addiction that separates them from God? Um, when we when we think of it in terms of, of particularly activities that are not sinful that can become addictive, you can take that a step further. There are activities that are good that can become addictive in a bad way. If a man will not work, neither should he eat. At the same time, Proverbs seventeen twenty six says, He that laboreth, that means just keeps on working more than he has to work, constant work. He that laboreth, laboreth for himself because his mouth desires it of him. Here's someone, this is a verse on a workaholic, not an alcoholic. A workaholic who just keeps on working, keeps on trucking, uh, keeps on laboring just because he's wanting to to feel some desire for himself. Now, whether that's desire is uh, pride, whether that's desire is materialism, there's an addiction. He's a workaholic. 
the Bible hits on, you might say, practically every form of addiction, provided that you'll let a, let them be categorized in terms of the, the nature of the addiction instead of trying to look for words like cocaine or Budweiser. Right. Um, and in terms of actual examples, and you know, Holly hit on something that I think is very important. The word disease gets used, and a lot of folks are uncomfortable with it. And the reason that is is because the word disease is being used in different terms on different sides of this discussion. Disease, well, when we're talking about something that has become a medical situation or a mental situation, uh, there has been a physiological effect that can be measured and quantified, then it enters into the realm of what can be called a disease. Just because it's called a disease does not remove accountability from the person that was engaged in it. Um, and the, the holdback with Christians is, well, when we call something a disease, then it's become excused. It's not my fault I caught pneumonia. It's not my fault that, well, we want to make sure we're speaking in, on the same terms here. Um, and there are those that will actually manipulate this term disease pertaining to alcoholism and use it as an excuse. Well, I've got this disease. Oh, Boo-hoo, what you need is to man up. Um, yes, you have a physiological problem that in most cases you've done to yourself. Um, but that being said, yes, just because the medical field can call it a disease does not create an excuse for those that have it nor does it move the accountability from them. Uh, as Christians, we need to be willing to, to use terms that will reflect a biblical perspective. Anything that the Bible defines as sin, well, it's sin because a person chose to do it. Um, I, I can't violate God's law without me making a choice to do it, and sin is violating God's law. So, again, when we talk about this idea of a disease, the word disease doesn't remove accountability, nor does it give an excuse. But I say all of that to say this. We can find various addictions in Scripture. We, we could look at numerous descriptions of drunkards. And descriptions of drunkards, we may read those and think of the typical Otis from Mayberry and right. his staggering into Andy's right. uh, jail. Um, uh, you know, his occasional binge. Or we read drunkard in Scripture, we might want to think about alcoholic and the thinking about how that would apply. But instead of just looking at that one, maybe we could, maybe we could approach looking for an example from Scripture, kind of building off of what Holly mentioned whenever she talked about pinpricks in her back and just realizing at that point in the shower that if she would do a little bit of work on this, uh, more benefit would come than the work that she'd put into it. Two examples come to my mind that I don't know that we really discuss as often as we could. One is, uh, of course, the prodigal. We, we're usually rather familiar with him. Uh, father, give me the portion of goods that falleth to me. His father divided unto them his living. And here this son took his portion and went off, and he wasted his substance with riotous living. He's in the far country. He begins to be in want. There's a drought in the land. He goes out, and he joins himself to a citizen of that land, and he's feeding pigs. And the pig's food looks good. He hits rock bottom, and it actually, uh, we're actually told in Luke 15, uh, when he came to himself, uh, he said, how many hired servants of my father? So he hit rock bottom, which is exactly a term you used a moment ago, Holly, and what you described. 
Now, with the prodigal, we could ask, what kind of addiction was it? Well, uh, it's really not specified. He was addicted to himself and spending his money. That is what it comes the the simple description of that. But then there's someone else in Scripture I don't think we often think of when we talk about addiction, and that's Gomer, Hosea's wife. I, I don't think that you could look at her behavior without identifying it as a sexual addiction, the way that she would run around with her paramours, the way that she would forget, as it's described, who gave her her blessings, her corn and wine and oil, how her husband provided for her. She wasn't worried about that. She was worried about the next fling. Mm -hmm. Now, like the prodigal, Gomer had to come to a point where her husband, Hosea, and of course, their relationship was reflective of God's relationship with Israel at the time. But just looking simply at Hosea and Gomer's relationship, Hosea had to come to the point where he stopped keeping her from hitting rock bottom. Uh, he had to let her crash. And then he went and he bought her out of the brothel at a discounted rate. And he told her, I'll be for you and you will only be for me. Uh, and that being a very brief description of Hosea chapters uh, 1 through 3. But here was a woman with a sexual addiction, and she had to hit rock bottom before she was willing to accept the help and appreciate what she had had all along before she left it behind. Which leads to the second part of your question. With parents who have uh, children that have entered into addiction, it it makes me shudder to think of seeing one of my sons hit rock bottom in that way. But when someone won't listen to anything else, then the realization has to come somehow. The more crutches we supply, the further they're going to go on crutches instead of learning to walk. Um, so when it comes to those sinful addictions, when, when all positive aid will not work, the prodigal's father let him go to the far country. Hosea had to send Gomer away. But then you have these others where they're not necessarily sinful, but it's just a, a habit that gets formed, and that's going to be a matter of parents being wise enough to see what kind of time are my children spending here and be proactive. Limit the time before it begins to develop. And there's a fine line between uh, an interest and an addiction. Um, I have a son who has a great interest in guitar, another who has a great interest in cars, another with a great interest in movies. And we, we want to feed those interests because bring up a child in the way that he should go, the way he is bent, the, the direction of his interests. You know, we want to develop their personal interests. But at the same time, the last thing we want to do is allow those personal interests to become an encompassing uh, flood that pulls them away from where they need to be. So a matter of helping them learn how to ration their time, if we're talking about video games, how to plan their schedule, if we're talking about the guitar, um, how, to, how to create their own sentences, if we're talking about the one that quotes movies instead of you know, actually communicating. Right. Um, but at, at parents having our eyes open enough to see what's taking place, identify, no, this isn't what it should be, and adjust, but when it really comes right down to it, the uh, and this is going to sound simplistic, but when you listen to everything that Holly said earlier, it's a matter of making sure that number one is number one. 
I'm the Lord thy God, and thou shalt have no other gods before me. It was the first commandment. What's the greatest commandment? Love the Lord thy God with all thy heart. Instill in them a love for God, and all of these other interests can be put in their proper place and developed to where they should be. Fail to instill in them a love for God, a proper love for God. Show them uh, any kind of negligence. Show them any kind of compromise as it pertains to commitment with God, and these other things will become an eclipse, and they'll get in the way. And uh, they may indeed become some of these, quote-unquote, non-sinful addictions that, that can become sin. But when we as parents are making sure that God and his word are where they should be in the lives of our family, uh, we are doing the first and foremost thing that needs done. And then the next very close priority is going to be making sure our eyes are open to their habits and patterns and that we're making the adjustments that need to be made when we see some uh, a habit developing that is headed in the wrong direction. I think it's interesting for us to you know, examine this topic because... It's not a fun one, and there are definite times, and I know Holly would not even begin to suggest this because she even alluded to the fact that you don't blame mom and dad for what you did. And I think in, in our brotherhood and in our world, we need to stop doing that too. Yeah. We, we really got to quit that because my mom and dad gave me the same teaching they gave Holly, so why am I not an, alcohol- why am I not an alcoholic? Because I didn't go through the same struggles. I, I didn't go through the same experience. And I, I, I'm fortunate that I didn't, but that doesn't mean that I'm perfect. I, I've got things I dealt with, too, in my life that I, you know, I had to overcome as well. But this idea that if one child doesn't do well, well, that's got to be the parent's fault. That's not the case. If a, if a father and mother do their job to show their child to Christ and the child still says, I want to do this, though, God gave us free will. God gave us the opportunity to choose to do that. The beautiful thing about that is we're kind of closing this first episode out is he also gave us a choice to determine to get out of it and to do whatever we can to get out of it. And our parents can't do that for us because if they could, you wouldn't have been what you were, Holly, for as long as you were because we all know what mom and dad felt about it and how they were wanting and praying. And now it's so wonderful, you know, with what you've been able to do in your life. But if just desire alone would solve everything, Nobody would be addicted to anything. Nobody would be in sin because parents wouldn't desire for their children to hurt. People wouldn't desire for their friends to hurt. Husbands and wives wouldn't desire for their spouses to hurt. Children wouldn't desire for their parents. I mean, on and on we could go with this. And if we start to realize that what we need to do ultimately with looking at addiction, in my mind, is two things. Admit it's real. It's far time to admit that it's real. We cannot keep saying, well, this is just some sin that certain people... No, people deal with this. And number two, understand that the cookie-cutter way to fix it is not going to be found. And we have to find the best plan for each individual person. Doing those two things will cause a host of other mini-steps that we have to do. And I know we're going to kind of talk about some of this in the next episode, but those two things alone, I think, are the two main points that come to my mind if we can do those two things, admit that addiction is real, and find a plan that tailors the needs to each person that's struggling, we'll do well. You know, and that's really what we're talking about. And if we want our lives to be far better, both in this and the next, we have to stop any addiction that's keeping us down. Whether it's I'm so addicted to sports that I miss services every time because we have a tournament. Whether it's I've got to have straight A's and so I'm going to do nothing but homework and I'm not going to do anything else in my life. Those things in and of themselves aren't wrong, 
but like we mentioned, they become wrong when Jesus is put in the on the back burner and those things come before. I won't be brought under the power of anything, and that means anything. And so as we close this episode out, I hope you'll turn into the next one because it's a good one too. I know it will be. We're going to talk about mainly what addiction can lead to, how we can overcome addiction, um, what advice we'd give to people who are wanting to overcome, and then looking on the biblical side of this, what addiction does to our relationship with Christ, Bible verses we should be looking to in an effort to overcome this, and also asking the question, can one really be content in Christ, or do we need outside things to help us? So until that episode, I want us all to resolve ourselves to please God now, so that our eternity is far better.